Nick Vins here. This week on The Chattering Hour, I'm joined by our executive producer, Chris Rowe, and we discuss some of our favourite moments from season one, and we reveal January's guests from season two. For almost 25 years, Chris Rowe Management has been a successful boutique talent agency based in Los Angeles. Some of their clients have included New York Times bestselling authors, Oscars, Tony, Emmy, Grammy, and Golden Globe Award nominees and winners. Up next on The Chattering Hour, Chris Rowe. season one and i'm delighted that i'm joined by the producer of the show mr chris Rowe. hi chris hello nick how are you i'm good thank you very much in there? yeah i'm hanging in there and looking forward to lots of christmas cake and christmas pudding and so on uh, christmas basically just christmas i'm looking forward to christmas <laughs> so am i <laughs> so Thank you. I mean, you are the man behind you, this all. Um, basically, you created the Chattering Hour. Um, perhaps you'd like to share with our viewers how it all came about, what made you suddenly decide, I know what I'll do is I'll start setting up a show where Nick gets to chat with people. Well, a long, long time ago, when I was but a child and I saw Hellraiser, I knew that one day I would want to do something with Nicholas Vince. Um, well, you know, it actually kind of spawned out of the pandemic because uh, months, weeks of just being bored, you 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 kind of go, well, what am I going to do? I want to do something. Um, I have thought of, for a while about doing a show like this. Um, the whole idea was to do a show that was showcased around my clients. Right. Um, and I have a lot and I thought you know, we can totally do a show that, that kind of showcases them in a way that's, that's really, uh, good and positive, most importantly, professionally done. And so originally that was the idea. And I had spoken to a few people about it and I thought, well, w what makes this different than the others that exist out there. And I found that there wasn't much. It was just kind of boring. And then, so I suddenly looked to, well, what have my clients done that I can kind of exploit that uh, and make it interesting? And of course, genre. Genre fans, great following. And uh, certainly I have enough clients to do that. And that's when I started to mold it together. And when I started to think of hosts, you were the only person that I uh, ever, ever thought about, to be honest with you. What you had done with your previous show, I mm -hmm. thought was fantastic. You, you had done it for a long, long time. And I don't know. I just think there's always something better when Brits speak. <laughs> and so it just sounds better. And uh, so I went, Nick, we need to do this. Yeah. And I remember just thinking, this is so, you know, such a cool idea. And I was particularly pleased because I think with our first guest, um, I was very lucky to chat with Malcolm McDowell. 
Yeah. Well, you know, the thing about Malcolm is he's the greatest storyteller. Uh, you could, Malcolm could read the newspaper and make it exciting. And uh, so I love his stories. Now, of course, being Malcolm's manager, I've heard all of these stories. I've heard these stories more times than I can even begin to count. But I never get tired of hearing them because they're always exciting the way he delivers them. And uh, for those who don't know Malcolm, uh, he's the funniest person. If, if you really get to know him, he's the funniest person that you'll ever meet. I mean, he's a total jokester. And so it just felt right to kick off the first episode with him. And it was an incredible episode because uh, we really got to dissect his career in an hour and 15 minutes, um, which wasn't enough. We didn't even get to the Rob Zombie questions, uh, unfortunately. But, but we really did get to cover a career that spanned over 50 years and still going really strong. Yeah, I think what I really liked particularly was when we got towards the end of the episode and he was talking about Truth Seekers, the um, Amazon series that he just uh, finished filming with um, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Um, and I, I, it was just his enthusiasm for it. I really loved. Well, Truth Seekers came out just a few weeks later. Yeah. And you had already, at that point, you'd had a chance to see some of the episodes. Mm. Um, so you, you, you had a feel for what it was like, what it was going to be like. I think you got to see the first five episodes. Yeah. And so uh, it's, a, it's a fun show. And it's, again, it's, it's Malcolm doing what he does really well, which is not scaring people. It's comedy. Mm. People don't realize the last... 10 years of his career. It's basically been comedy. He did a television series for uh, TNT called Franklin and Bash. It was a comedy. He did that for four years. Then he went to Mozart in the jungle for Amazon. That was a, that was a comedy for four years. Then there was about a year lag and then he went straight into truth seekers. And now we're waiting to see if there's going to be a season two, but he was excited about it. And, and who wouldn't be working with Nick Frost and Simon Pegg? They're an incredible team. They're wonderful guys. Um, and, you know, Malcolm got to know them. I think also what was fun about the show for Malcolm, which he may not say just in casual conversation, but knowing him personally, he got to spend time in London. Malcolm doesn't live in London anymore. Malcolm hasn't lived in London since 1980. And so, you know, he goes back occasionally to do a movie or some kind of a press engagement. So he's in and out in three, four days or a week. He got to spend several months back there. And I think that was a great thrill for him because he got to see so many people that he just normally doesn't get to see. And because he had said to me one time, he said, you know, I really don't have a lot of friends left that I grew up with and was close to. And this gave him the chance to really reconnect. So along with a really good experience uh, of just being in London plus shooting the show. Uh, yeah, he was really excited about it. And, and it comes across in, in his conversations, even to this day when he's doing press. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's it's for fun. It's a really gentle thing. I've, as you say, I've I've seen the first five episodes. I haven't had a chance to watch the last three because it's eight, I think, in the season. So as again, that's for my, my couple of weeks off um over Christmas. That's one of the things I'm really looking forward to sitting down and just finally catching up with. The other thing I really liked about uh, Malcolm was chatting with him, was him talking about his son's album. When I asked him what his one of his favorite music albums was, he chose an album by his son or his son has been working on recently. Um, I thought that was really interesting. I hadn't realized um, his son was doing that. But the, also, the other thing is that he mentioned Bath Oliver's, chocolate Bath Oliver's as a luxury item that he'd like to take with him. And then literally a week later, the New York Times published an article to say that they'd stop making them. <laughs> <laughs> but I've just done the research and apparently Huntley and Palmer's, the guys who make it, um, have said that this was uh, overstated and the fact that it's more to do with COVID and difficulties with supply. Um, and I was like, I've always heard of Bath Olives. I don't think I've ever tasted one, but now I really want to go out and buy them. Well, the one thing about Malcolm, anytime we've traveled around the world, uh, before he ever gets on a plane, before he even says yes to the movie, the first question is, what city or what country are we shooting this in? And, you know, when I first started to represent Malcolm a long time ago, uh, I always found that to be such an odd first question. And uh, then I realized it was all about the food. He wanted to know what city he was going to be in or what country. And he would say, oh, no, boring food. I, I don't want to go there. Uh, so Malcolm uh, has an appetite for food. He loves it. And why shouldn't you? There's, yeah. some, great, there's some great food out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the next guest on the show was the lovely Kathleen Kinmond, who it was great because she just published a book and an autobiography. Well, it's kind of an autobiography. It's a series of articles and, and so items during life based on the idea of life lessons. Um, wonderfully titled, I Should Have Been Nicer to Quentin Tarantino. Uh, it was fascinating to uh, learn the story behind that. How long have you known Kathleen? I've known Kathleen for, I would say, at least 14 years. Um, probably going back to uh, 2006 is a good guess. 2006, maybe 2007. Kathleen is one of the most generous, kind loving human beings you'll ever meet. Uh, there is something about Kathleen that is just unlike what you find. Um, she isn't fake in any way, which you tend to find in Hollywood a lot. Um, if she asks you questions and she's engaging in the conversation, it's because she's actually interested in what's happening. And I love that. And I love her. And she's, uh, she's been doing this a long time. A long, long time. And um, she's a genre favorite. Fans really like her. So I uh, I was really pleased to have her. And of course, the book is fantastic. It's very personal. Um, and it really covers, uh, you know, her life in a way that you probably wouldn't know. Um, going all the way back to going to school with Quentin Tarantino. Mm -hmm. um, and, 
yeah, it's it's a it's a life well lived, and I think she has a lot more of great things uh, in in store for. Her. I mean, she's been filming for the last couple months on an, on a new show, and um, you know she's she's a wonderful person. She's a wonderful mother, and um, loves her family and her friends. Can't yeah. ask anything better than that. Yeah, I mean, I loved her stories about Donald Pleasance having a little red cup on set. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, you know, honestly, that's what makes these interviews interesting. Really, is when you get to find out all those little details um, that you would never know. Mm. I mean, you would never know. Uh, you know, the general public, press—they're not on set for these incidents and and um, or occurrences. And uh, so, so to hear the guests talk about it is really, really great. And I know that Kathleen has some good stories. Malcolm's got some whoppers. And unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to talk about um, uh, sword fighting with Oliver Reed and <laughs> a handful of other stories. Robert Shaw, um, uh, raging alcoholics. And so <laughs> there are some stories there to be told. That's for another show. That's for another show. Oh, well, well, you know, having back on any time. Um, <laughs> I can't, I'm trying to even think which film he was in with Oliver Reed. Um, but it was a movie. It was a movie, I believe, called Royal Flash. Oh, um, right, right, right. Yeah, now, that makes sense. And then he did a movie called Figures in a Landscape with uh, Robert Shaw. And there, there's a great story where Robert Shaw has a brand new Rolls Royce delivered. And, and within weeks, he completely totaled it because he was drunk, completely totaled it and then had a new one delivered again. Uh, you know, it was no big deal. It was, I'll just get him another Rolls Royce. <laughs> Robert Shaw trying to get Malcolm to get in the car with him while he was raging drunk. <laughs> Malcolm was like, no, I don't think so, darling. I'll walk. <laughs> Yeah, I think it was one of the things I, I do like. You know, it is, as you say, finding out all these fascinating stories I um, I hadn't heard before. I think it was Kathleen, I think it was the process for Bride of Reanimator in terms of getting the live cast done. No, I mean, I had a live cast done when I, you know, full body live cast done when I was um, doing Chatterer. But I, what Kathleen went through was an awful lot. <laughs> <laughs> it was a great process and if you get a chance it's hard to find but if you get a chance there's some great photos of her having the process done unfortunately most of the photos out there are really low res so you can only see just small images of them but it's, it's pretty gnarly to mm. see i mean in a way um they're doing exactly a Frankenstein, you know, yeah. uh, uh, they're, they're piecing her together bit by bit, layer by layer is, is pretty fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what I found particularly interesting was the conversation I had with her about the movement, how she got the, you know, how she got the role uh, to begin with, but also the, you know, the actual movement uh, in Bride of Reanimator um, and so on. Yeah, no, as you say, a fascinating late. And from her book, I learned the meaning of namaste, which means I recognize the divine in you as you recognize the divine in me. Which I just, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which kind absolutely. of sums up Kathleen. I mean, not uh, everybody gets to be impaled with a shotgun on a wall. Yes. And, uh, uh, you know, that 
I remember seeing that scene in Halloween four when I was young going, my God, how do they do that? I mean, that's been the big thrill for me is I grew up with so many of these people, um, never thinking one day that I would be their personal manager, that I'd be running their careers. I would be running their business. That's the trippy thing because I grew up watching Hellraiser. I grew up watching uh, uh, Malcolm and Kathleen and so many of the folks that we've had on. So 15, 20 years to get to have a friendship with them and, and get to, um, to know them in a different way is quite incredible. Back a long time ago when I was doing journalism, I had done an interview with Marriott Hartley. And um, Marriott Hartley, uh, it, it was actually an interview for, uh, for Star Trek because uh, she had done uh, the original series. And she wrote me this lovely note and she said, I'm so sorry for this being late. It was a press kit she was sending me. She goes, here's some photos. Here's bio. Hope we get a chance to talk again. It was a lot of fun. Uh, love, Marriott Hartley. Well, fast forward, I represent Marriott Hartley now. And it was really kind of funny because I was going through some things during the pandemic Actually, the closet door opened and all these boxes <laughs> fell out on top of me. And all of these papers fell out. And one of the papers that fell out was that note from Marriott Hartley. I, I, I did that interview probably back in 1995. And there it falls out. Right there is this note from Marriott Hartley. And I represent her. And it's so crazy because... You know, I showed it to her and we had a good laugh. So that's been the big thrill, uh, I think, for me, just getting to do this is not only like I know them. I know their personalities. The general public, maybe not. Most people don't know that Malcolm is incredibly hilarious, but he is. Most people don't know that, you know, Kathleen is just this incredibly kind, giving person. I mean, you just want to have a conversation with her all the time. She should have been a therapist, really. Um, you know, Meg Foster and, and uh, uh, Tracy Lords and all these folks. So it's, it's so for me to get to know them in a different way is always a lot of fun, which, of course, I know the answers to all the questions that we put together. <laughs> That's why a lot of the questions are, uh, you know, there's some kind of off the wall questions there. But, of course, I know the answers because <laughs> I have that inside scoop. <laughs> well, you just mentioned Tracy Lords, and of course, uh, Tracy was uh, who I've met on a couple of occasions, um, and she's just again another sweet, warm, lovely lady. We, I remember talking to Tracy and talking about stories I'd not heard of before. Was how she got prepared for Blade, um, and that they walked them through this tunnel. Uh, so that they could get covered in blood, which I thought was fascinating. I just thought, yeah, of course, that's the most sensible way to do it. Walk in one end, completely yeah. dry, walk out the other end, completely drenched in blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, again, when did you, do you remember when you met Tracy? Uh, I, you know, I, I do sort of remember when I met Tracy, uh, probably was maybe eight maybe nine years ago. And um, 
my my thoughts of her at that moment because I remembered her immediately when I met her. I, I went, oh my god, Blade. Um, I remember her in, in the Tommy Knockers because I'm a big Stephen King fan. Um, I remembered Tracy from uh, uh, Roseanne. <laughs> she had a, a recurring or a, a show. She popped on Roseanne a few times. Um, and of course, Crybaby. I mean, mm. uh, we we all watched Crybaby there in the early '90s. Uh, not of this earth. Um, if you're a Roger Corman fan, you certainly know that. And getting to know Tracy has been one of the great, wonderful things that's happened to me because we've become incredibly good friends, and I love her dearly. And she is. Um, the absolute utmost professional. I mean, it doesn't matter where she goes. It's like that saying that Joan Crawford used to say, if you want the girl next door, go next door. She never leaves her house without looking fabulous. 150% fabulous. It doesn't matter. It's going to the grocery store. She looks fabulous. Um, but she's a fabulous mother. She loves her son so much. And it's you see that and it's just beautiful. She's an absolutely wonderful wife. She loves her husband. She loves her job. She is such a professional and I got to work with her. Uh, I directed her in a, in a project a couple years ago called A Tale of Two Sisters. And it was kind of a, it was a black and white homage to the great films of the forties, early fifties, noir films. And she was my first thought. There was not another person that I had in mind for that role. I wrote it with her in mind. Um, and the idea I had come up with about seven years earlier. Um, but finally, uh, we got it written in 2018. But she, and everyone thinks, oh, it's comedy, comedy. But she's so much more than that. And she's a really good dramatic uh, uh, actress as well. So she's fabulous, creative, and 100% business. And maybe one of the only people that I ever got intimidated by on set because she has a presence and it's 100% confidence. So she totally is there. But a couple of times I got a little intimidated because I thought, oh, my God, how am I going to get her to do this scene when this is not a scene that she's going to enjoy doing this way? She's not going to enjoy being not attractive. She's going to she's, she's going to push back on that. Uh, she's not going to enjoy doing it this way. But then you just have to kick in and you have to go, well, I'm the boss. Uh, but she was great and I loved her and I, I'd work with her anytime. You saw the film, you saw yeah. the film. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I really enjoyed uh, Tale of Two Sisters. I think one of the other things I really enjoyed about doing this show is the fact that I'm, is my film watching lists. I've watched dozens of films now in preparation uh, for talking with people. And one that really stays with me is Excision. You were talking about Tracy as a dramatic actress. Extraordinary performance. I'd not heard of the film before. Um, it's way out there. And she is just amazing. You're talking about a 
being a mother, the way she plays this mother uh, is amazing, amazing. So I was, I was really pleased to actually get to, you know, to watch see that. that and have a chat with her about, you know, the filming of it and how she got the part, etc. That was the first movie that I ever saw her, I think, in a serious, dramatic way. And I went, oh, my God, this woman really can act well, if given the opportunity to do so. In Hollywood, it's all about the opportunity. You can mm. be a fantastic actor, but if you're not given the opportunity to do it, then you just kind of hang in limbo waiting. Um, Christoph Waltz told me once, he said, there's two things you have to have, every actor, and it, and it really applies for almost any profession. But you have to have opportunity and preparation and the opportunity that is not up to you as the artist. That's not up to you. That just knocks on the door whenever it knocks, but the preparation is up to you and you need to be prepared and you need to be ready. And, uh, you know, Tracy was totally prepared to do that. Um, and it was probably the role that I saw, her in that I went, whoa, she can really go there. Because up to that point, it had predominantly been comedy, mm. kind of campy uh, uh, things that I'd seen her do. Not that I hadn't seen her do other dramatic things, but with Excision, she got a chance to really show it. Um, I had Malcolm McDowell in that movie. And that's why I ended up seeing the movie was because Malcolm had a small cameo in there. And um, when, when they called me and they told me that uh, Tracy was cast as one of the leads, uh, I didn't represent Tracy at that time. And I, I had met her and I knew her a year or two before that. And I thought to myself after reading the script, wow, that's an interesting choice. But that's kind of all I thought. Mm -hmm. It was not negative. It was just, oh, that's an interesting choice. Then I saw it at Sundance Film Festival, and I was like, whoa. Because to get to see it on a small screen is one thing, but when you really see it on a big screen, it's really incredible because mm. visually at times the movie's really gorgeous. Um, so, yeah, Tracy's – she's fabulous, and, and Excision is, uh, is, is pretty out there. As I've always said, I don't love it, I don't hate it, but it's somewhere right in the middle where you're always drawn into it. And when I say I don't love it, it, meaning it's not a movie I could watch over and over and over again. Um, but I like it. And it's just, it's a bizarre film. Yeah, it's a very, and as I say, interesting, the, you know, the performance of the other, one of, funnily enough, one of the other um, things that I watched, and it's worth tracking down if you can, is the, um, the Tales of the Crypt that she did way, you know, decades ago. Um, and again, it's just a very small, in the, well, in this instance, it was a very small part, but she absolutely nailed it. Um, and she has so little material to work with, but you know exactly what is going on in this woman's mind. I think she's only in for about the, the first five or eight minutes, in the, in, but it sets up the episode and it is, you know, absolutely extraordinary how much she manages to convey in just those few moments. And again, yeah. you know, somebody else, again, preparation, she trains and uh, so on. Um, our next guest 
was somebody who you have known for many years, a gentleman called Daniel Krauss. Yeah, Daniel. Daniel and I went to the same school together. We grew up in this little town uh, in, in Iowa called Fairfield, a little farm community. It was about 11,000 people. Um, now I live in California and, you know, there's 11,000 people in, you know, four block radius. <laughs> but um, uh, after George Romero died, I represented George for 15 years up in, until his death. Um, after George passed away in uh, July of 2017, uh, you know, uh, you've got to start the business process rolling. Um, after you take some time to grieve. And so I, I started looking at properties. I started looking at different things. And one of the things that I had remembered working on and George had started was a book. Um, George had started working on a novel um, right before he had his stroke in 2009, early 2010. And so he stopped and then he, he got back with it. And it was a deal that I put together originally with uh, a, pub a publisher in New York. And it was a really good deal. And George just wanted to write it on spec, take his time and do it, not be you know, restrained uh, by, by the publisher. Well, I knew that was a mistake because George was a great procrastinator. So I knew this was going to take forever, and, and it certainly did. But uh, so I dug out what he had done, and um, it was originally uh, just titled The Living Dead. And it was incredible. I kind of reexamined it again, and we looked at it, and I said, I think we should try to get this book finished. And so Daniel, I had reached out to, I knew Daniel and reached out to him. And um, we hadn't really spoken for many, many years. And I, I knew he was a really big fan, a big fan. And he had done work for Guillermo del Toro. They'd collaborated a, uh, several times. He also had written a couple of really good books. So I knew his writing style, which was really important because um, when two different writing styles collide, you can have mm. a problem. You see that sometimes in cinema when you have two directors for a film. Every once in a while, you'll go, that was an odd way of doing that. Um, and it's because two different styles. That'll work for an episodic, but that doesn't sometimes work for a film. Same thing for writing. And... Um, Boy, Daniel sat down and he worked on it and, and, and came up with a, a sample treatment for the rest of it. And uh, George's wife, Suzanne, and I looked at it, loved it, and said, let's go shop it. And we did. And that became The Living Dead. And uh, it's an extraordinary, uh, in-depth, super long book. If you like long books, <laughs> you'll like this book. I think it's 765 pages. But it was wonderful, even after George's death, to see something come to life uh, that he had been working on. And Daniel did a wonderful job. So it was great to have him on to talk about the book. Yeah, it was really, <laughs> the only reason I'm laughing at the length, of, when you mentioned the length of the book, is I just remember 
I, I was reading it and I, I just wasn't getting through it fast enough. So then I got the uh you gave me the audio version of it great i'll just listen because that's also narrated by um another of your clients is one of the narrators yeah daniel uh daniel and i uh talked about uh uh the uh who should be the narrator and there were several people that were supposed to do it um one particular fell out which i was pleased about and um, it gave me the opportunity to suggest Bruce Davison, who, of course, is a really phenomenal character actor. He's won a couple Globes, Emmy and Oscar nominated. Um, and he's done audiobooks. He has a great voice. And when Bruce sits down to do something, he really does it. it he just doesn't read it. He performs it. And um, he did a fabulous job. Uh, the publisher was really thrilled with it. Suzanne was really thrilled with it. And, um, you know, I wish honestly he'd read the whole book. Um, because I think that is a perfect example of keeping the consistency mm -hmm. with the same reader, I think would have been the best way to go with that. That being said, it's good. Um, uh, Lori Cardill, who had worked on Day of the Dead with George, um, is the, the other uh, reader. Um, and Lori's fabulous. She has a magnificent voice. Um, but there's a, there's a difference. She kind of just reads it, whereas Bruce performs it. Uh, and I think it would have been great to just have the performance all the way through. Right, right. Yeah, no, I, I remember discovering that on Audible that you can actually speed up the rate at which you're listening to the book. And I, there were some stages I was listening to it at four times the speed, just so I could actually make sure that I got this listened to entirely <laughs> by the time I was actually getting to have a chat with Daniel, who's a lovely guy. Uh, he's a really, really nice guy. And I was, I was able to share with him one of the moments that I really like in the book is that he managed to sneak in some of the plots to George's films, um, disguised as stories within stories within the book. Um, another, uh, you know, our next guest is a, another artist, well, an actress who's become an artist, a visual artist, and that's Nancy Loomis, who John Carpenter films um, had, had some great stories and so on. How long have you worked with Nancy? I've worked with Nancy, I think, for 16 years. Uh, it would have been 2004, maybe 2005, but I think it was 2004 um, is when we started. And Nancy, uh, if, you, if I need a therapy session in tranquility, there's two people I will call, Nancy and Meg Foster. Uh, those two are the, just so zen. And, and Kathleen, we'll add mm. Kathleen to that list. Uh, she's incredible. And what was great about Nancy's interview is there were stories in there I've never heard, which is really great and really exciting for me to hear something I haven't heard before. But it was really great to hear her talk about those early days and John Carpenter's process and really how they were just a big family in a way, a big group of people who just got together. Everyone did something in order to make it. Um, 
And it's always great to hear. Again, it's kind of on the inside of how, how it works, which we don't always hear. John Carpenter's spoken about it, but it's nice to hear it from a different perspective. And um, what can be fatal is when both have a different recollection. <laughs> it's a stark difference to contrast to what, but nah, that it didn't happen that way. What are you talking about? But, it, but that wasn't the case uh, in this, but Nancy's, she's a great storyteller and um, she's a fabulous artist and she's a really good friend. I love her. And, um, you know, she was our, our Halloween uh, edition and uh, one of two for our Halloween edition. And she's, um, she's a good friend. She's a good person. Yeah. Yeah. I, the, one of the moments I really liked talking to was listening to her describe how, as I say now, because she's moved on to doing visual art. In fact, she does 3D, 3, 3D sculptures using found objects. And I've seen photographs of these things. And these things, you know, they stand about as tall as me based on the photographs of them. And she said, and she doesn't use glue. They're all held together with bits of string or they're slotted into one another. And I just think there must be an absolute nightmare to transport <laughs> because you kind of get the feeling they look so fragile. So it, I, I think I published a few of the photographs um, in some of the assets that we, we used to publish the show. And if people haven't seen them, look look for the art, you know, the sculptures of Nancy Loomis, because they look amazing. They um, are. Her work is incredible. I, I remember I went to her home, oh, maybe five years ago, and it was around Christmas time. And she had one of the most incredible Christmas trees I have ever seen, ever. And the entire tree was made up of ornaments that she had made that reflected what was going on in the times and she had made out of newspaper clippings and different things uh decorations of nelson mandela i think he had just passed away uh martin luther king was in there um i think there obama was in there um uh just different things that had been in the news it was incredible i I'm, <laughs> she went somewhere and I, i'm taking pictures <laughs> of it and i still have them but I'd never seen anything like it. It was absolutely beautiful. And I don't know whether you could replicate that tree. Like it is a one-off. I don't think making uh, mass production of, of, uh, of what she created, I don't think it would work. I really don't. It was mm. this one-off piece of art that, I said to her, I said, you know, I hope you don't take this down. I hope you just kind of put it in the corner and you just leave it up for a long, long time because it's pretty incredible. And uh, there she is. She's quite an artist. Yeah, yeah. Our next guest was somebody with an extraordinary career, um, Courtney Gaines. And he had some some amazing um, stories. One of which my favorite, one of my favorites was uh, his experience of working on colors with Dennis Hopper and uh, you know, the story of how he got the part, but also how he suddenly ended up by singing a song and getting a music credit on the film. The fact that, you know, he was playing a guy, an LA gang member, um, 
and that uh, he was the only, you know, he was the white guy with the red hair. And he's, I remember watching this and thinking, that looks really incongruous. And he's saying, yeah, but he grew up in that area and he had a friend. <laughs> he based his performance on a friend who was um, Caucasian and had beautiful red hair. Yeah, it was, it was funny. I actually, about a week ago, I was watching Colors. One in the morning, I was working on the chattering hour. I was working on a script uh, for someone and, and putting questions together, and I put it on. I haven't watched it in some time, uh, but I watched it, and there's this scene of this group of guys coming down this hill, and you just see that one of them in the distance is like, is he wearing a red hat? And he's like, no, that's Courtney, that that red hair. But he, you know, he did. It, it was a, it was a, it was a, a, a great performance. Um, it was a nice, really supporting performance. I happened to find that interview of, I know Courtney very well. Courtney has been a client since I think 2004, maybe 2003. And we're really good friends. And Courtney is at my home for birthdays, Christmases, Thanksgivings. He's, he's been there. Uh, his birthday is the same day as my son's. And so uh, we're like a, you know, it's like a family. Uh, Uncle Courtney's coming over. I mean, he's, he's always, he's, he's always been there. He's been a good supporter and, and friend, but I found him to be incredibly generous with his stories. Uh, I've known him for a long time and I've never heard him be so personal before. And we spoke about it after the interview, after I watched it. And he said, you know, he goes, I watched the interview as well. And he goes, there was something really inviting about Nick. I felt really comfortable talking to him. And he goes, I found myself talking about things I've never talked publicly with anyone. I've never discussed in an interview with anyone. And afterwards, he was like, wow, I you know, it's, it's almost in a way like a therapy session, how you feel when you leave a therapy session. And he talked about things and it, it comes across in the interview because it's really, really personal. Mm -hmm. And um, he's, uh, he's a great guy. And mm -hmm. uh, of course, Malachi from Children of the Corn was the role that really, you know, threw him on the, on the scene. Um, and he's had a, you know, he's had a great career. I mean, t up to this point, uh, for all the years he's worked in the business, uh, he has a lot to be proud of. But uh, that's actually one of my favorite interviews of all the ones we've done because he was so personal. And because, again, he shared stories that um, even, even myself I had never heard. And that is in largely because of you, you know, the person who's doing the interviewing, if they're asking ridiculous questions or they're boring, you just want to get it over with. It doesn't matter if you know each other. In your case, you're very inviting and you ask the right questions and you have the right tone and it really makes a difference. And there's other people throughout this first season who have said the exact same thing. So thank you very much. I think this is one of the things that I've enjoyed most about the season so far well the season um and then some of the upcoming interviews that i've already done for for our next season 
is that I'm really hoping that actors and directors and writers are actually watching and listening and learning from these because people have been incredibly generous about talking about the realities of the business. And not just the, oh, you know, it's tough, you're going to have to struggle to get jobs or you need a second job or something. But actually, I think, again, what I found so touching about Courtney's interview was that just that honesty about what he was going through at a particular time after he'd become basically become exhausted and the lack of support he got from his fellow actors because they just couldn't comprehend um, what was really going on. So, yeah, and no, I, I really love the, um, the fact that people are being so generous with their time and, and uh, honest in their answers. Sure. Um, it reminds me that it, Courtney's uh, audition for Malachi and Children of the, the uh, Corn was quoted by our next guest, which was Jonathan Breck. Uh, they were talking about Jonathan's Jeepers. Uh, Jonathan was talking about his audition for Jeepers Creepers. Uh, and I'd not heard this story before. I'd not heard Jonathan's uh, audition process. It's pretty trippy. <laughs> I found the video of it on the YouTube video of it online. People watch the show, watch the show, then go and watch the uh, video that Jonathan refers to in the um, in the interview because uh, <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. It's definitely not how I would ever approach it. Well, yeah, I couldn't. <laughs> well, uh, you'll find they do things a little differently here in America. Um, <laughs> You know, I remember being told one time, true story, of an actor who was auditioning for, for a role, and it took place in medieval times, that he walked into the room in a suit of armor, and he buried an axe in the desk of the producer, and the producer pulled out a revolver and told him to get the fuck out of his office. Um, you know, stories like that, you just go, oh my God, Courtney, with with... Children of the Corn, pulling that knife out and looking at all of those casting directors. Courtney has a dead stare anyway. So it really worked. So to have this guy come up and start sniffing around your neck uh, and doing the things that Jonathan did was, uh, you know, it, it gives you chills thinking about it. Yeah. Um, I'm sure uh, some casting director out there who has experienced some really bizarre stuff will probably write a book or maybe they have about crazy auditions that they've experienced. Cause I, you know, being a manager here in LA, I hear about some really crazy stuff, you know, casting directors who, you know, they're the reader and all of a sudden the, the guy just jumps out and grabs them. I mean, <laughs> there was one where the, the actor, actually, I think it was one of my clients, um, well-known clients grabbed the casting director and kissed her as part of the audition, she was like, what the fuck are you doing to me? Don't you ever do that again? This is back in the day. But my point is, it's, you know, people who get into it, they, they're creative and they do some pretty crazy things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that was before the city was ravaged with STDs and all of this stuff that exists now. You wouldn't dream of doing such a thing now. But, uh, um, 
Yeah, I, yeah. Jonathan's got a pretty good story. Yeah, again, a lovely guy. You know, I've been lucky enough to spend some time with up with him up in Scotland and done a few shows with him. It's just again, a great another, sense of humor. Another client for seventeen years. Wow, seventeen wow. years for Jonathan. It was two thousand and three. Wow, wow. Well, I think our next guest isn't a client of yours, and that's John Cassier. John is not a client of mine. Uh, I wish that he was. Uh, I love John. Of course, who didn't grow up watching Tales from the Dark? Uh, sorry, John. <laughs> Tales from the Crypt. Um, they watched Tales from the Dark Side too, but then went to Tales from the Crypt because it was a little more animated. But um, John's great, and he is an incredible talent uh, that, quite frankly, uh, has never really gotten what he deserved. Uh, as a predominantly a voice actor, you don't really get scene they just hear you and sometimes you don't even know who's doing it thank god for tales from the crypt kind of making him this household name um but he's an incredibly funny guy he's incredibly intelligent and um i really enjoyed listening to him talk about you know like his favorite films and because some of his favorite films they're my favorite films and for Christmas and as a thank you gift um, uh, in the interview, he talks about Clockwork Orange being absolutely one of his favorite films that he would take with him. So I, I sent him a, a Kubrick deluxe uh, uh, Blu-ray box set and uh, a limited edition um, um, art print uh, signed by the artist and Malcolm as a gift. Um, and uh, he sent, picture of him holding it he was completely over the moon but what a great man i mean he's an incredibly funny man um totally animated and what a great story i mean his his mother and father are syrian mm. was it syrian and i think i'm either syrian or iranian and i'm just trying I, I, well to... i think one one was syrian and one was iranian i think i mean it's an incredible Ira story. Ira iraqian iraqian and syrian uh father yeah, from yeah. iraq and mother from syria yeah it's incredible it's incredible and um you, know, you grew up in, in baltimore and and you know basically just said i'm gonna do this and uh, but that's how it starts it starts when you're young you start playing make-believe and doing voices and doing all of those things and john's incredible i think he's great i i would have loved to have seen john's career as an actor in front of the camera really take off because um uh he he's really good and well, and and probably one of my favorite probably one of my top three favorite interviews of the entire season well i think what i and you were talking about, you know, who didn't grow up watching Tales in the Crypt. Well, of course, I didn't because we really didn't have it over here. Um, it was not broadcast. I'd heard of him and I'd seen snippets and I knew who, who he was. Um, I was aware of the comics. Funnily enough, we'd had the comics over here. Uh, we didn't have the TV series over here. Um, but what I found fascinating talking to John was also his stage career and the fact that, you know, he'd done the three na three guys naked from the waist down uh, the, the play about being stand-up comics and how is use 
said this led on to the fact that he had a career in stand-up and wanted to do TV thing and so on, but also things like Reefer Maggie's the musical. It was yeah. Star Search that he won, right? I yes. Believe. Yeah. <laughs> I think he beat out, was it Sinbad? Yep. For, for Star Search. I mean, yeah. he's, he's a funny guy. I, yeah. I, in fact, as you know, every year I throw a, a Christmas party, holiday, a, 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 a holiday season mm. party. And can't do it this year uh, because of uh, what's going on. But um, I really wanted to have him come because I just wanted everyone to be able to see him and talk to him. And you never know who's going to be there. Mm. Uh, And I really, yeah, I really, really wanted to just get him to just sit down and talk more because he's a lot of fun. He is a great deal of fun. Um, One of the um, stories that... uh, I remember most from the season was that, and that was one told by Amanda Weiss about being told by Brian Dennehy saying that the filming of Silverado was a very rare thing because there was such a feeling of camaraderie uh, on the film. Uh, and I just thought, oh, yeah, that's a really interesting story. And Amanda, again, <laughs> had so much fun talking with Amanda. Amanda is, uh, she's a, she's a, a delight. Amanda isn't a client. I've known Amanda for a long time and uh, we, <laughs> we always are running into each other or something. Um, but Amanda, she's really good actress. And I think oddly enough, um, I really remember being scared watching Nightmare on Elm Street her her opening scene in that i mean from the time you see her running through the you know the boiler room um uh waking up uh, you know you're going on a ride at, at that moment but the scene that scared me so much when i was a kid was the scene where robert england's character freddy krueger's arms are really long and he stretches out like six feet on each side and, and he's scratching the uh the side it the sides of the wall it terrified me and then of course she's hanging from the ceiling and it was intense and i re- would remember always covering up with the blanket but i loved the movie but i couldn't watch that scene um you know and and uh but she was fantastic in it i wanted her to be in it more for amanda it was the exact same conversation we we chatted after the, the interview and she said, uh, again, really honest interview, really personal interview. Um, and it's great when you can get actors to, to be like that. Um, and people out there are probably what, what they're not honest when they talk. No, of course they're honest when they talk, but it's, you take them to another level discussing things that maybe they wouldn't normally discuss. It's really about comfort. You know, sometimes you can go off and do a movie and it can be a horrible experience. I mean, you know, I've heard horrible experiences working on The Exorcist, William Friedkin. And then you've heard great stories, but they don't always tell the horrible stories about working on that movie. Um, And some people don't care to. But then suddenly you'll get people who will start to open up and they'll start to talk about it. And then you learn something that you didn't learn. Sometimes you end up going, wow, that director's a real jerk. 
you know, um, and, and Amanda, she was, you know, I thought it was a really open, honest interview and really happy to have her. And she yeah, I, I, I think one of the things that's really interesting and it kind of came out in court, it was a comment Courtney made, but also Amanda was being very aware of what roles are available to them and what they should be doing in the at particular stages of their career, um, which led to us talking about Hallmark Christmas romance movies. Um, and I have to thank Amanda for now watching at least a half a dozen of these things because I'd never seen one. And it's like, we'll talk about that. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is what you're always talking about. I had a great chat with her about. So. Oh, every once in a while, one will come along that'll be pretty good. Kathleen Kimmont did one a, a year ago. Uh, I think it was actually, uh, it might have been Lifetime, uh, but it was really good. But some of them, they're just cookie cutters. It's the same, it's the same sort of thing over and over it's, and over. It's again. the same plot. It is literally the same plot. And it's just like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And that's, again, another fun interview. Somebody who I found incredibly enthusiastic, incredibly friendly, and that was Brad Greenquist from Pet Cemetery. That was it was a real joy. He was he was talking before you know before we started the actual recording. He's just so lovely to meet you, and, and, and so he was just really, really fascinating. And again, somebody who was willing to share insights. Not just like meeting with Stephen King very briefly on the set, but all because he's now got a big career as a, a uh, an acting coach uh, yeah. in in Los Angeles uh, Brad is uh, he's an absolute gentleman and he's a uh, total professional uh, and uh, I, I I like Brad I always have and um, you know for those people who are fans of the original pet cemetery um, the only one that I consider uh, uh, the, his character Pascal it stays with you the entire mm. movie I mean even though he gets killed early on of course his his character just keeps returning but again another one of those films that I remember watching and it's scaring me constantly his character constantly scaring me and um I I liked the process because it was kind of like the character in American Werewolf in London who, who dies and you just, every time you see mm. him, he's rotting more and rotting more and <laughs> rotting more. Um, and uh, again, uh, I think I saw that movie maybe the first time I was on a band trip with my high school band going to Florida and they had rented some VHS, a bunch of people brought a bunch of VHS movies and we were watching it on the bus and I was kind of horrified by what I was seeing. Um, but it was brilliantly directed by Mary Lambert, who is such an incredibly gifted uh, director um, and artist. She too is an artist like Nancy. And, um, I, you know, I just think it's, you know, one of Mary's just best pieces of work. And um, uh so glad to have Brad be a part of it just to, to, to tell the stories and and um he's a, he's a pretty charming guy uh, yeah. I love the interview yeah another very enthusiastic guest <laughs> Daniel Roebuck 
such a nice man. And also it was so nice to meet another, to meet a Hellraiser fan. Daniel is the ultimate fan himself. Uh, I mean, he has such an incredible collection of memorabilia going back from when he was a little kid. And that's when it starts, right? It yeah. starts when you're a little kid. And, and um, I think that Daniel, uh, I've known Daniel for years. I'm really happy to have him as a client. And I, uh, it's just, you know, I grew up watching him and everything. And I remember my my parents watching Matlock, and I remember watching him in Matlock, and then I remember, uh, of course, The Fugitive and U.S. Marshal, and and um, of course, then he's become Rob Zombie alumni. But you know, I see Daniel bouncing around uh, Burbank all the time, you know, in the grocery store, walking down the street. I mean. Actors do live normal lives, at least they try to. Yeah. And Daniel's one that fits right in. I mean, he's just, you know, you see people stop, stare at him in the store. They pull out their phone and they start, you see people doing this. You know, <laughs> yeah. Because they're going, I know, I know who that is. Um, <clears throat> he's, he's a great guy with wonderful stories, really about how you make it in this business. Mm. And, and the, the, the trials and tribulations and everything in between. And um, yeah, one of the great joys was going to Daniel's house and just looking at this collection of stuff. He's got so much. Oh, you know, I'm Planet sure. Apes, there's Planet of the Apes mannequins and <laughs> all kinds of stuff, which is great because I have that stuff too. I mean, I have, you know, original Planet of the Apes costumes and I have dresses and I have all kinds of stuff, that, you know, here at the house people come in sometimes and go what the hell is all of this stuff uh but it's you know it's the world we live in yeah no i, I have to say one of my favorite moments in any interview is when we both discovered oh, i'm losing this because i'm on i'm on zoom can i there we are this book that I'm trying to show you, I guess it's green. It's going to go off against the green screen. But this, the book that um, Daniel has got four copies of. Been I know. On my bookshelf. After your interview, I checked. I went, well, I want that book. <laughs> I want that book. And I found one for like 250 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and I, sw I swear I remember talking to somebody else about that book as well. It's extraordinary. Well, it came out at the right time. I mean, you yeah. know, for those of us, you know, who grew up in the, the 70s and you started to, to see all of the all of the books that came out on, you know, Planet of the Apes and, and just all of the great movie makeup uh, stuff, Dick Smith you know, really started to forge uh, uh, a name for himself at that time. Rick Baker in the mm. early uh, uh, 1980s really emerged. I mean, I remember watching Rick Baker uh, in the making of Thriller, being completely amazed. I had seen American Werewolf in London. His, his work is incredible. So, yeah, uh, that that book is, uh, is, is pretty sensational. <laughs> it, it's, it's a really fascinating book. Um, and uh, you were talking about films scaring you and so on. I remember um, the film uh, Black Christmas when it first came out. Um, a, the poster disturbed me because it shows Lynn Griffin, our guest, basically wrapped up in plastic 
Um, and we got a chance to talk about that, but I remember seeing the film when it first came out. But honestly, what a lovely, lovely lady she is. Lynn is absolutely, you, you want to hug her. You just want to just run up and hug her. She is so sweet and so charming. The first time I met Lynn was in, uh, I think I was in uh, Ottawa, Canada, maybe Montreal, uh, at an event. And I just kind of looked and I was like, oh my God, that's, that's Lynn Griffin. Now I knew Lynn <clears throat> from Strange Brew. I used to watch that when I was a kid <laughs> all the time. Um, and it used to be on HBO and it used to just play over and over and over again. Uh, and then I discovered Black Christmas. And I think Black Christmas is maybe one of the most terrifying uh, holiday horror films. I really do. I think it's incredibly eerie and creepy. And um, it, you know, the remake, not so much. Uh, but um, you're right, that poster with Lynn dead with a plastic bag tied around her head. There's something that's just visually disturbing about that in the time of year that's supposed to be love and cheer and giving. And um, I later saw Lynn in, a, in one of my favorite Stephen King uh, projects, which was The Storm of the Century. She played a character named Mrs. Kingsbury. And I loved the whole premise of that project um, being off on this remote island, cut off in the horrible uh, blizzard. Uh, I mean, it's so Stephen King takes place in May, uh, Maine. And, uh, you know, she was great. It was a really nice supporting role. Lynn's a really talented woman. And I had purchased <laughs> from Lynn one of these incredibly gorgeous uh, crocheted, blankets that she makes and she flew into Los Angeles and I met her in a Denny's parking lot in order to trade off. I gave her the cash. She gave me the blanket. It was like a drug deal, but she uh, and her husband, they're lovely and charming. And she's one of Nancy Loomis's oldest friends. And so that was a lot of fun just to hear Nancy talk about Lynn, Lynn talk about Nancy and um, uh, yeah, really happy to have her. I felt it was really important to have some kind of holiday horror theme uh, for December. And it was really nice to have Lynn to kick that off with Black Christmas. Yeah. And I think you know, what was nice about our next guest was uh, Stephen C. Miller was kind of on the other side of the camera because uh, Stephen's the first director I've spoken to. Uh, in the show. And again, a fasc we were talking about Silent Night, but again, a fascinating story from how he started out as a kid with a big camcorder on his shoulder and, you know, pressing play, knowing that he couldn't possibly edit this, uh, kind of thinking, okay, well, there, then where have I got to move the camera next? And so on. I thought that was really interesting. Um, Stephen is really, he's a fabulous director. I, uh, I booked Malcolm into uh, Silent Night, which was kind of the loose remake of Silent Night, Deadly Night uh, in 2012. And uh, the producers had reached out and they were looking for <clears throat> um, someone like Malcolm for, for that part. I, I was on set. It was shot in Winnipeg. 
um, which at the time was a pretty depressing city to shoot in. Um, I think it still is, but uh, sorry, Canadians. But um, it, it was, you know, like a lot of film work was happening there. And uh, Malcolm had just finished a movie and he called me and he said, oh, my God, darling, I'm so glad to be getting out of here. I can't wait to go home. And I said, uh, it's been that rough. He goes, oh, it's just, you know, there's really nothing here. And I said, oh, well, um, boy, do I have some news for you. And he went, what? I said, I got you another job. He goes, oh, good. Any, I just can't wait to get out of here. I said, well, you're not going anywhere because it's literally the next film that you're going to start five days after the project that you're working on now ends. And it went silent. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he said, uh, he said, uh, well, see if you can get me the same room so I don't have to move. <laughs> and I did. I got him the same room, got him everything. And he just stayed up there. He didn't even come back to Los Angeles. He just stayed. And um, it was fascinating because half the crew that he had just worked with, he was working with again on Silent Night. And Stephen couldn't have been a better director. He totally knew his stuff. And to this day, Malcolm has said he would love to work with him again. Loved him. I saw him on set. I thought he was totally 100% uh there and excited and um showing everyone that he could do it and do it well and i i think it's a i think it's a great film it's supposed to be campy mm. uh, uh you know i heard someone say something about the movie it was negative and i and they said you know oh it was you know it wasn't even scary i went it was supposed to be camp horror you you do understand there's a difference in 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 movie and it's i think it's great and and what has happened is it's as the years have gone by it's gotten more and more of a following mm. and it's it's fun it's, a fun it's just movie. fun yeah it's, <laughs> it's not supposed to be an oscar contender no 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 it's just you know just and, and by the way the person who said that to me about that movie made one of the most awful pieces of garbage i've ever watched uh, so I think, you know, uh, you know, it was incredibly low budget and it was horrible. He thought he had made the, you know, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, it might've been Lawrence of Arabia garbage, but, uh, Steven's film was just fine. I, I enjoyed it a lot yeah, and he yeah. a great guest and he's gone on to work with some incredible talent, you know, Bruce Willis, Aaron Eckhart, uh, Stallone. Um, you know, I, I think you're going to be hearing from Stephen for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And again, just another very honest and really fascinating guest who really knows his, his craft and was able to communicate how he builds a scene. And we were talking about the violence and so choreographing the violence in two different films. I thought, fascinating. Well, he, and that he does well. He mm. choreographs action scenes really, really well. Mm. And they're mm. very well covered. Everything yeah. from hand movements to the feet to the, you know, whatever it is, close up. He's really good at doing that. But he's also an editor. And yeah. I think that makes a really big difference. Uh, you know, George Romero told me, you know, that, you know, the best directors are editors. 
um, George started out as an editor and, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was a really good one because when you're directing, you're cutting it, you know, yeah. exactly what you want, um, where you want to cut it. You know, all this in your mind and yeah. Stephen does that very well. Yeah. 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 No, no, uh, final guest of this first season, uh, continuing with the, uh, Christmas theme, of course, was Chris Sarandon. It was fast again. And I have to say, I got a little bit awestruck uh, talking to Chris Sarandon because he's been in some of my, two of my all-time favorite movies, and that's Fright Night, uh, but also Dog Day Afternoon, apart from A Nightmare Before Christmas. And it was really fascinating to listen to him talk about his preparation for Dog Day Afternoon, but also the fact that it kind of reflects his story as being an outsider. Yeah. Chris is an incredibly charming man. He's also a really good actor. Um, and yeah, he, he did uh, a couple of things that they're always going to be here. Fright Night is just one of those films. I watched it so much growing up. Um, of course, uh, played the detective in Child's Play. And, mm. and, you look at a nightmare, the nightmare before Christmas and what that movie has become is absolutely unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, you know, there's merchandising of every kind that continues to come out every year. Disney has made an absolute fortune off of that. And I hope that Chris has continued to be compensated properly for it. It's a little trickier when you're just an, an animated character. Um, but uh, his voice is used all the time for different things at Disney. Um, but I just remember uh, the funny story about Chris. I remember watching Fright Night. I remember my grandmother coming in and seeing it. And she stopped and she never watched that sort of, that sort of stuff. And pretty soon she just sat down and she was drinking her coffee and she just didn't leave. And I didn't say anything because I thought it was cool. And then, you know, when he started to turn at the end into this, you know, horrible vampire, um, you know, she, she hung around and it ended and she said, Oh my God, that man is gorgeous. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I looked at her and, and she said, I wasn't quite thrilled with what he turned into in the end, but she goes, I just had to stop and watch. God, what a beautiful man. And then she got up and she walked into the other room. Um, and that was kind of my first memory of him uh, or anyone talking about him was my grandmother stopping as she was walking through the living room to stop and see this man on the screen. Uh, you know, Chris comes from Greek heritage. So do I. And um, so it was just great to hear about mm. his story, his life. And of course, his first wife was Susan Sarandon. And, um, uh, you know, what a great career, stage, yeah. film and TV. And uh, really happy to have him. And really for our uh, Christmas uh, edition our Christmas episode. I can't think of a better guest to have yeah. because literally his fans are of all ages. I mean, mm. from the tiniest of the tiny to the oldest of the old, they're all there. People love the nightmare before Christmas. People love Friday night. People love child's play dog day afternoon. 
um, just cause, uh, although he got cut drastically in that movie, but um, first class guy and yeah. uh, really happy to read his memoir when he gets. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. I, I think it will be an absolutely fascinating, um, an absolutely fascinating book. Well, we're run over a little bit on our time. That's not the first time that's happened, but perhaps no, you'd like. All. Not at all. I'm the one sitting back, usually going, "Well, this is really not the chattering hour." <laughs> and maybe for season two, we'll change it to you know the chattering time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> perhaps you'd like to share with our viewers who our next guests are. Yeah, I'm really excited about our our lineup uh, of guests for. January. We're going to go on break for two weeks. Um, and then we'll be back on the 14th. And I'm really pleased to say that Lynn Shea will be joining us. Um, Lynn is just what a career this woman's had. She's absolutely, uh, I mean, if you want to call her a scream queen, you can call her a scream queen. You can call her whatever you want to. Uh, but she's really turned into, uh, that the, the ultimate female force of nature and, and horror. I mean, and, and what a great career. Her comedic timing is brilliant. You look at films like something about Mary or Kingpin and you just go, oh my God, she wasn't even the lead, but she had the most memorable scenes. Mm. Um, so super happy to have Lynn on the 14th. Uh, of course, Insidious franchise and, and all that she keeps doing. This woman keeps working all the time. Mm -hmm. um, our guest on the 21st will be director Tom Holland, who, of course, made Fright Night. Night and Child's, Child's Play. Play. Yeah. Uh, he did Stephen King's Thinner, which I happen to love that movie very much. I know some people have been critical of it, but I thought it was a great movie. Um, he also did Stephen King's The Langoliers. But he also had a really successful career as a, as a writer. I mean, he wrote uh, Psycho 2, which I thought was a very good sequel and, and a hard thing to do. I mean, you got to be really careful when you mess with a franchise like that. Mm -hmm. and kind of the whole trail. As the others went on, not so good, but I thought two was really a solid movie. Um, uh, the Beast Within, um, you know, a really gifted writer. So super, super happy to have Tom to talk about his really long career. And then the very next week on the 28th will be Darren Lynn Bowsman, who, uh, of course, was the director of Saw 2, 3, 4. Uh, the new Saw film, Spiral, um, The Devil's Carnival, Repo, The Genetic Opera. He has a new film out uh, that's his most recent that's called Death of Me. Um, and it's, it's a pretty trippy film. I remember when Darren went to Thailand to film this. And I'd kind of forgotten about it. And uh, yes. it came out, it came out uh, in October. So that's our lineup for... January, already working on February. I think it's going to be a root and toot and good time. And um, I think we have some really fabulous guests that people will really enjoy hearing from. I'm particularly excited for Lynn. I've watched it. Uh, I watched them all, but uh, 
there's something about watching it again when it comes out. I can't wait to watch it again. Yeah, yeah. That, again, all three of them are really fascinating. And again, very generous with their time and honest with their stories. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Yeah, and I just can't say <clears throat> enough thank you to um, you know you for all of your hard work. You do an absolutely magnificent job every week, and I appreciate it. Um, at this point, I don't have any more hair to lose, so <laughs> I my eyebrows, those I have to worry about. I'm going, I'm going a little grayer, but I really can't thank you enough. It's been a fabulous season. I uh, want to thank our associate producer, uh, Jared Friedrich. Uh, he's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, Amanda Rome, uh, who does all of our uh, uh, PR and social media, and um, Craig uh, 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 Berman for doing all of his hard work. Um, and, the, you know, the others who really participated in this. So a successful first season and on to season two, mm. uh, a lot more uh, chills and thrills. And we might even have some of these guys from season one come back for season two for something special because some of them we just didn't really get to finish. Mm. And really, like, we just ran out of time because that's what happens when you yeah. have a lengthy career. Yeah, yeah. Well, and. Thank you. Reciprocated thanks to you, Chris, because what people don't know is, is you kind of mentioned, but basically I get this wonderful list of questions. Um, I get my film, my, get my film list to watch. Um, and, but I also, as you say, uh, you put together the, the questions and I'm really, really grateful. That's what helps. You are the wind beneath my wings. Well, basically. I try, I try, <laughs> I try to be a, I try to be a strong breeze <laughs> so you can just glide and glide and glide. But uh, truly, I think the other thing that I really want to do is thank everyone who tunes in. Mm. You know, I've had, I've had multiple people come up to me, a few people on the streets in Burbank these days uh, that know me and they'll come up and they'll go, Oh, Chris, I just, I just uh, watched the most recent episode of the chattering hour. It's really great. That's a great thrill. Because, uh, you know, you don't know who watches it. I have no clue. And, um, you know, there are some who really enjoy just watching it. Some, they listen to it, you know, uh, on, on a, as a podcast. So thanks to all of our viewers and our listeners who tune in every week faithfully mm. to, um, to listen and watch. And um, we wish you all the absolutely most beautiful new year. Uh, 2020's been pretty dark and bleak, and uh, so I'm happy for it to come to an end. Looking forward to uh, uh, a new and brighter year with greater and creepier guests. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. Well, thank you, everyone, very much. Thank you, Chris Rowe, um, producer of The Chattering Hour, and thank you for everyone for watching, and again, as Chris says, wishing everybody the best for 2021. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks on January the 14th when I'll be chatting with Lynn Shea. Right. Take care. And until then, be safe and well. The Chattering Hour, hosted by Nicholas Vince, is produced by Chris Rowe Management and Tea Time Productions. Producer Chris Rowe, with production support from Jared Friedrich, and Amanda Rome West. Composer Kevin McLeod, copyright 
Tea Time Productions.